Good morning, everybody. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the August 27, 23rd edition of Ask a Leader. Today is the 70th anniversary of the Women's March for Equality in New York, and tomorrow, of course, is the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Oh, what we have to pay forward in honor of those who toiled on all our behalf. Today on Ask a Leader, we go from the subjugative to the sublime as we have attorney Christina Fialo of Civic, that's Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, and with the vision of ending isolation of immigrants in civil detention by building and strengthening community visitation programs across the U.S. Some of you heard Heather McCoy talk about that with her last week. We'll talk, take up the immigration policy side today. Then in the second half, we have with us Italian scholar Liliano Leopardi to bring us behind the scenes during the last weeks of the Bowers exhibition of the Medici Gems. So don't go away. We'll be right back after a brief station break. Thank you for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest is Christina Fialo, attorney and co-founder, executive director of Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, also known as CIVIC. She is current recipient of an Echoing Green Fellowship and a Rockwood Fellowship, and she's a steering committee member of the Detention Watch Network. Christina is a member of the State Bar of California and has argued before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and has helped defend immigrants before the U.S. Immigration Courts. Prior to starting Civic, Christina co-founded the first immigration detention visitation program in California, researched immigration detention internationally for a global detention project, and worked upwardly mobile, upwardly global, excuse me, global to build more inclusive hiring practices for skilled immigrants in the U.S. Christina's over 10-year-plus engagement in social justice began in her undergraduate days at Santa Clara University and later the Santa Clara Law School, where she was the editor of the Law Review. And she did graduate all over with uh, honors and distinction. She comes to us today from the Irvine area, where we will focus on immigration policy as it stands. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Christina. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Well, let's, Christina, start with the personal, where this all began for you with a friend of yours whose father was deported. Sure, yeah. So back in um, 2009, one of my close friends, her uh, father was uh, detained and deported within a span of just 48 hours. Um, and that wow. really caused me to look at our immigration detention system a bit more. I was already vocal focused on immigration law and immigrant rights. But looking at the immigration detention system, I was just horrified. 
basically every day immigrants are disappearing from communities across the United States and are being detained by the U.S. government in county jails such as the Santa Ana City Jail, um, James Music Facility here in Orange County, and for-profit prisons such as the Adelanto Detention Center here in California up in the Mojave Desert. And these individuals really are our community members. They include victims of human trafficking, asylum seekers, and other immigrants with long-standing community ties. Many have lived in the U.S. since they were young and have raised a family here with U.S. citizen children. Right. And although they are held in jails and prisons, these immigrants are not in confinement because they committed a crime. And that's something that not many people realize. Instead, they're being detained by the U.S. government almost indefinitely while they fight their civil immigration case. And because immigration law is civil, these individuals are not afforded a court-appointed attorney. So 84% lack attorney representation. They are not afforded a free phone call when they are booked into the jail, which means that they cannot notify their loved ones of where they're at. And because immigration law is federal, a person can be picked up in Orange County, California. And although Orange County has three immigration detention facilities, ICE, which stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, can transfer them to a detention facility in Georgia or Texas or New Jersey. The detention is a very isolating experience, and what my organization, Civic, is trying to do is to end that isolation by connecting people in immigration detention to community members on the outside to visit them. And, and yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, and these visitor volunteers meet with people in immigration detention on a weekly basis and provide them with a connection to the outside world. And oftentimes the visitor volunteer is their only point of contact to the outside world. And I appreciate, Christina, that you did talk with Heather McCoy about that in the hour prior last week. And so uh, what we're going to focus on is that having laid out that very graphic profile of an immigration detainee, we're going to talk about what's gone on with the the policy and where the pending immigration reform uh, stands with that. So let's start to take let's take it up when the Bush administration implemented this in year 2005 in Operation Streamline, uh, which is the the basis for uh, of these uh, practices here, um, which is it's being implemented in all of the southern border states, all the way California, all the way to Florida which under the Department of Homeland Security program requires, as you were talking about, the federal criminal prosecution imprisonment of all unlawful border crossers so that these uh, undocumented um, residents uh, have already, by in the eyes of the Operation Streamline, have already committed this transgression for which they are they're poised for this incarceration that you've just described. The federal charges and the federal uh, criminal justice system uh, would... Uh, would prosecute these people from where their first sentence is six months, I guess, and then the second with the first border crossing, the second border crossing, which is uh, always a, it's an increasingly higher probability than the, uh, the probability being associated with the fact that these detainees have members that are established in the U.S. At that, can, that second border crossing is a 20-year sentence. So how has President Obama con- Obama continued to implement this policy? Yeah, that's a great question. So just to clarify, so um, the immigration detention system that I was previously talking about um, is civil confinement, but Operation Streamline actually takes 
this a step further and yes. actually criminalizes immigration basically for somebody just crossing the border the border patrol can decide whether they're going to put them into immigration detention which is civil um just so they can fight their immigration case or before they even put them into immigration detention prosecute them criminally for crossing the border and our country's current debate over comprehensive immigration reform completely overlooks the fact that federal spending on immigration enforcement now surpasses all other federal law enforcement activities combined because of costly programs like Operation Streamline, which really expand, really expanded under the current form um, of the immigration reform bill. Well, so let I, me talk yes, I was just going to say that we'll put a number on that, Christina, with your permission. I, I read that... Um, Former U.S. Attorney um, Bates Butler III out of the District of Arizona, had, he quotes that there's uh, $5.5 billion spent out for incarcerating undocumented immigrants for immigration-related infractions. That's since 2005, $5.5 billion. Exactly. And yes, so this program started back in 2005 as a program of the Department of Homeland Security. And what Operation Streamline does is it, it criminalizes undocumented immigrants and funnels them into the federal criminal justice system. And according to the Warren Institute at UC Berkeley, Operation Streamline mainly targets migrant workers with no criminal history and has resulted really in a skyrocketing caseload in many federal district courts along the border. So this, there's a a lose-lose here where, uh, in terms of the, the budget, the fiscal aspect, impact of this implementation, as well as the receiving end, the, the detainees are losing out in terms of they have no recourse. There's no due process for them for their incarceration. And so and with the sentence steeply increasing with each time, as, as I said, the probability increases uh, for returning returning to loved ones that are established here. So this, it's important, I'm just for those of you who just joined Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, my guest is Christina Fialo, co-founder and executive director of Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, also known as CIVIC. And we're talking about the current uh, the, the status quo with immigration policy under, and we're talking uh, in some depth, I hope, about Operation Streamline, which is running a huge tab and filling up. Now, the the uh, detention centers are now, many of them, brimming past capacity. So there's that, that is a, it's a third lose situation where uh, the infrastructure can cannot even handle this if we are not already offended by uh, the kind of lack of recourse that these detainees have. Exactly. And immigrants charged criminally under this program, Operation Streamline, like you said, are sentenced to spend years in federal prison. And it's actually 13 specific prisons called Criminal Alien requ Requirement Prisons, or CAR prisons, that use taxpayer funds to warehouse immigrants in really substandard, privately owned, privately operated immigrant prisons. And Operation Streamline is just one part of the broader trend of criminally charging immigrants under one of two federal crimes. So one of the crimes for unlawful entry of an immigrant, as you mentioned, yes. is a misdemeanor punishable by up to 180 days in custody or 
unlawful reentry. So these are people who may have been deported who want to come back because their U.S. citizen children live here, their families are here. Um, and when they cross the border again, there that 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 can be penalized by up to 20 years in federal prison. And you know, Civic is receiving more and more calls from families who have lost contact with loved ones. You know, they think their loved ones are in immigration detention, but when we search the immigration detention database for their loved ones, they're just not there. And they're instead in this massive network of federal prisons, and we have no clear way to find them. And it's it's just heartbreaking. So how do is it even possible to locate them? We, we, I'm actually working with a family right now in Texas, and we cannot locate um, a, a young boy who was born very, I mean, he was born in 1992. He's a young kid, and we can't locate him. So wow. there's really just no way to find them if they're put into this um, system that punishes them criminally for um, basically just crossing the border. Well, Christina, is there a, a, a factor of the the privately uh, run detention centers and the kind of traceability and accountability of where these detainees are? Or is it just the, the fact that there's no due process anywhere, public or private? Um, well, you know, people in, in immigration detention, as well as people who are prosecuted criminally for um, entering the country, um, are afforded due process in some respects. However, people in the civil side, in immigration detention, you know, they're not afforded a court-appointed attorney. So due right. process is kind of a loose term when it comes to being applied to non-citizens. Um, but with regards to the for-profit prisons, um, you know, on a national level, we hope to see the immigration reform bill incorporate a strong system of independent oversight and even a training requirement for detention facility officers. Um, the current model of oversight does not effectively prevent human and civil rights abuses in immigration detention. It does so, not. For looking at just the civil immigration detention side, although ICE contacts with a vast network of private prisons, the two biggest are GEO Group and Corrections Corporation of America, also known as CCA, as well as county jails. And ICE does not enforce any unifying operation standards for these contracted facilities. Facilities, Even ICE's, um, they have something called their performance-based national detention standards. These are merely internal agency policy and do not carry the force of law. So additionally, mm. only ICE monitors compliance with these standards without third-party oversight. So it's basically um, ICE overseeing itself, which is problematic. Very, very. Well, um, and the, with, we'll talk about the, the legislation pending, and we're going to talk about the window of opportunity for any kind of uh, policy to be enacted at this point. The, we're already talking about the unintended consequences, or maybe, I don't know if they're intended. We, we can see that there's a tremendous amount of support of the uh, privatized detention center ownership and the, I call it the immigration industrial complex that's certainly supporting uh, senators on both sides of the aisle, and I dare say, it's, I'm no doubt, the uh, representatives in the in the in Congress, in the House of Representatives, that uh, these <clears throat> this this kind of support is making it more and more difficult for these 
uh, shortcomings, uh, policy shortcomings for detainees to to be uh, addressed in a more, uh, I think, uh, uh, intellectually honest kind of fashion. So I let's talk about then the you said the Senate bill is going to be uh, uh, taking up Operation Streamline, expanding it, uh, and uh, whether or not it's going to include what the uh, private detention center's accountability is. Let's talk about uh, what's in the bill now and whether uh, we're going to see any movement in the next, and why it's essential to see any movement between now and the uh, November of 2014. Sure. Yeah. So um, in June, the Senate passed um, its version of the immigration reform bill by a vote of 68 to 32. And the bill contains a number of positive detention-related amendments, such as considering alternatives to detention for individuals subject to mandatory detention. And mandatory detention actually affects about 200,000 people per year. It basically takes the discretion away from judges to decide whether to release somebody on bond, which is essentially bail. Um, But this, this particular bill actually considers alternatives to detention. So that's a good thing. Okay. Um, it also um, considers appointing counsel for unaccompanied minors um, and people with mental disabilities. Because, as I mentioned, right now, approximately 84% of people in immigration detention are not represented. And, wow. um, however, I am really concerned about the impact of several damaging amendments yes. added really at the 11th hour during closed-door negotiations. Most significantly, the final bill includes a massive ramp-up of border militarization that would sweep more immigrants into our mismanaged and sometimes abusive detention and deportation system. And that's that's what I've been talking about, for us to keep, uh, uh, be mindful of this uh, immigration industrial uh, triangle that is supporting the contractors who benefit from this, uh, that has nothing to do with what a long-term enlightened policy would look like otherwise. Go ahead. Exactly. And, you know, these for-profit prisons are interesting because their main goal, of course, as a private organization is to, um, publicly traded organization, is to make money for its shareholders. And so at the end of the day, they're looking for ways to expand um, their prison system, to expand and actually, right now, um, up in the Adelanto area near Victorville, the Adelanto Detention Center, which currently holds about 1,300 people in immigration detention per day, is has been lobbying ICE. It's a geogroup-run facility, and they've been lobbying ICE to expand to another 600 beds, which would make the Adelanto Detention Center the largest immigration detention center in the country. Um, And these for-profit prisons, they were behind the legislation that was passed in 1996 that really greatly expanded the number of people in immigration detention. Within a span of a couple of years, we went from about 600 people in immigration detention on any given day in 1995 to right now over 34,000 people in immigration detention. And so, you know, I'm fearful that this what we call as a comprehensive immigration reform bill is actually going to greatly expand immigration detention and the criminalization of of immigrate of immigrate of immigrants and immigration law. So this immigration industrial triangle has a way of ratcheting up 
the confinement, uh, detention of these uh, undocumented uh, individuals then. It's, it's only going in one direction with their formidable influence in the legislative arena, Christina. Exactly, and, and it's particularly um, scary now that the bill has passed the Senate. The House of Representatives is now weighing whether to take up the Senate bill or pass its own version of an immigration reform bill. And how does that differ, their own version, from this one? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're going to know more when um, September begins, because I think the big story for this month during yes. the August recess is that Republicans we've spoken with haven't seen what some had predicted. You know, there's no major anti-immigrant movement forcing members of Congress into action. So for people who care about immigration and for people who care about um, just their fellow human beings living in their own communities who may be affected by immigration law, the next few months are really critical. We need to be emailing, calling, and visiting our congressional representatives to let them know that we will support an accountable, moral, and balanced immigration reform bill. You know, back in, 19, in 2007, I did some congressional visits through my organization that I was working for at the, t- at the time, mm-hmm. Upwardly Global, and my colleagues and I were told that the window for comprehensive immigration reform yes. would be in the second term of the next president. That's, that's this one. right now, right. President Obama's second term. When a new president comes into office, into a first term, mm-hmm. getting something to pass in Congress might very well prove to be much more difficult. So we really need to push Congress right now to pass that accountable, moral, and balanced immigration reform bill. And with Nate Silver's prediction that the Senate likely can go into Republican control, that the vestiges of immigration reform as enacted, as you said, a 68 to 32 vote uh, in this last month, uh, uh, that this is the, the window of opportunity it doesn't close, it slams on this last, uh, what, 11, 12 months. Definitely. That's very well said, and I agree. No, what you're saying is well said. I'm just trying to keep up with your intellectual formidability, believe me, since (laughs) all the things that you've been uh, keeping, all the plates up in the air, and it must be difficult because it must be really hard to go to sleep at night with all of the really uh, incredible kinds of case studies that you know, individuals that you know that are uh, really uh, in a in a horrible way with their isolation and isolation is the only word that's a starting way of describing that so it's a it's just amazing so we've, we're talking about that uh, that you said the the constituency is really narrowing here more and more people are understanding uh, how the the undocumented individual it's a very gray area families are on both sides of the border many of them many more are without status on the american side of the border and we're talking that there is a the, dis, there's a disproportionate amount of uh, latinos that are incarcerated under these civil and criminalized uh, detentions i just wanted to say so back to uh, what you were what we're talking about this constituency is that the the major constituency are the the for-profit uh, portfolios the for-profit detention center portfolios and less and less actual uh, voters uh, throughout the country so uh, the it's all important for as you say to focus for constituents to focus on their house of representatives as opposed to the senate there's the, it's a done deal with the senate legislation 
Exactly. And and while the for-profit prisons have a lot of power as corporations, the people still have a lot of power, especially when we speak in a unified voice. And I think over the last three years even, as I've been working with communities across the United States to really grow what we call the visitation movement, yes. connecting people in immigration detention to um, community members on the outside, we've really seen that communities are starting to understand what is happening behind locked doors in their communities in these immigration detention facilities. Um, we went from about only uh, four visitation programs in 2009 to now 28 visitation programs in 14 states um, with about 700 visitor volunteers. And these visitor volunteers are sharing their stories with their families, their friends, their colleagues, their churches, their schools. And so we're seeing that more and more people are learning about immigration detention. But as we see more and more people learning about it, we also see the government coming on us and trying to silence us. So actually, just within the last month, um, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement shut down three of Civic's affiliated visitation programs. Really? One How? Um, because there's actually, unfortunately, no um, legally protected right to visit. So we visit really kind of um, at the, the grace of, of the government. And without giving us any formal reason, without giving us any notice at all, they suspended our programs at the Adelanto Detention Center, this for-profit prison, as well as two of the Orange County facilities, the James Music Facility and the Santa Ana City Jail. So, so which one is left, Christina? Soon, and I'm so, yes, I'm, which uh, detention center is still open for the visitation program for these detainees? Well, there's um, there's ones you know across the across the country that are still open. So it's only these three that have been affected. Oh, um, just the three in Orange County. I thought you said two of the three. Two of the three in Orange County, but unfortunately, Fayo Lacey, which is the third uh, detention facility in Orange County, has never let us start a visitation program there. So there's zero um, opportunities here. Yeah, but we we are still, you know, trying to visit, and we're working with ICE to rectify the situation. So if anybody is listening and is interested in learning more, they can go to endisolation.org. Um, and sign up to be a visitor volunteer. And I'll be, sure that I'll be sure in the podcast summary that you can go back to those websites and others, folks, so that uh, opportunity doesn't fall through the cracks here because that's, that's a travesty. So you've got all of these volunteers that are in Orange County. Are they going elsewhere, or how, how are we going to make good use of those veterans in this visitation program volunteering? Yeah, great, great point. So up in Adelanto, the volunteers have actually been um, essentially blacklisted, so they weren't able oh. to even go in to visit. But here in Orange County, the volunteers were at least allowed to continue visiting whoever they had been visiting previously okay. during regular visiting hours. So and things didn't change too much, but it's just the fact that instead of rectifying some of the issues that I had pointed out um, to ICE, they decided to just shut us down and, and silence us, um, and that—that's the problem when there's no independent oversight of this of these um, facilities and of the system. Well, I guess I'm pretty pretty royally disturbed that that there's a fascistic kind of uh, implementation uh, underway here in denying these people the the right to have a, a look at another human being across the um, the window. There, it's just that's just. 
extraordinary. It comes out of uh, some old kinds of, uh, you know, Turkish, uh, you know, feature films about how they take care of the detainees. It, this is not very far removed from some of those kinds of draconian uh, measures, really. <laughs> it's, and that, as you said, they've been, many of them have been sent to other uh, states without anybody knowing, and you can't trace where that uh, Texas uh, detained, uh, born in 1992 uh, gentleman is uh, at this point. So I hope uh, that either on Heather's show later or on mine, you can post us on some development where some people have been found and bro- uh, there's been breaking through. I want to just let you know as we're wrapping up the interview, folks, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming at uh, detention waiting room centers where there's Wi-Fi on KUCI.org. My guest is Christina Fialo, co-founder and executive director of Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, as I said, also known as Civic. So we've got windows of opportunity closing uh, for uh, legislative reform that's driving every one of these trains, buses, cars, and cabs. Folks can get on board. They can contribute. Uh, supporting these detainees when looking up the Friends of OC Detainees at gmail.com to look up any changes in the uh, legisl- well in the in the rules uh, guiding whether uh, ICE is going to uh, let's say liberalize some of the terms here for allowing people to visit. Now, could a new volunteer visit with an, a detainee who's already meeting with friends of OC detainees? Yes, yeah, so we we're working with ICE right now. Friends of Orange County detainees is a is a, a visitation program. It's part of Civic, but it's its own organization, Correct. and they are in communication with ICE, trying to work out the situation here locally. And I'm actually have a call this afternoon with ICE's national office to determine um, how to move forward and make sure that this never happens again to a community. So your call is to appeal to them to reverse the order that is uh, uh, suspending the visitation programs and... Exactly, and to make sure that this never happens again because all visitor volunteers are trying to do is to support people in their community. I mean, visitor volunteers, we're we're not activists. We are just there to support people in immigration detention. And when we see something that is wrong, we we need to speak up, and that's, that's what we've done. And instead of trying to rectify the situation, they've tried to silence us. But I'm hopeful things will change. So we're definitely still recruiting for new visitor volunteers, and we'd love to, um, you know, be in touch with anyone who's interested. And they can visit endisolation.org for more information. All right. And I know you have a good deal more you would like to prepare because you have all sorts of case cases to, to work toward. Now you need to be terribly prepared for this important D.C. call to ICE. So I really value your setting aside time this morning uh, in advance of making that phone call. I wish you all the luck in uh, certainly getting uh, through to ICE to to change the rule so that uh, there can be more interactions with, uh, with let's say, residents, citizens with these detainees. And I also want to say, Christina Follow of Civic, that I really honor what you do. I thank you for your valuable time and and your, all the intellectual heft that you're giving to this social justice movement on the detainees' behalf. Thank you so much, Claudia. Wish you all the, well, the best, and I'm going to hope to hear through either Jan Meslin or some others how that all went. Thanks again for being on the show, Christina. Thank you. That was Christina Follow, 
uh, who was the, as I said, the the co-founder and executive director of the Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement. And we're going to then take a, sh a brief break, and I'm going to bring up uh, Liliana Leopardi to talk about those lovely gems that are at the uh, Bowers last almost three weeks uh, there at the, the Gems of the Medici. Stay tuned. We'll be back in just the time it takes me to queue up. Liliana, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us. I thought it only appropriate that we would hear from our, um, it's a mass, an African mass, uh, to sort of honor the, the dispossessed, the detainees, dispossessed of any kind of real rights that we could recognize. Well, for this part of the show, now we're bringing on my second and last guest, and that is Professor Liliano Leopardi, the go-to scholar with the three final weeks of the Bowers Museum gems uh, of the Medici uh, exhibit. As an early contributor toward bringing and presenting this exhibit, her current interests are in, and follow me folks, this is really delectable, in ornament, uh, precious and semi-precious gemstones, magic, material culture, fetishism, that's love to say that word I do, and the construction of masculinity in the Renaissance. Her most recent publication is Speculum Lapidium, Some Reflections on 16th Century Italios, and uh, that's the engraved gems, and Astral Magic in Abraxas. It's in the International Journal of, of course, Esoteric Studies, uh, published just this last summer. Liliana Leopardi earned her master's degree in psychology from the California Graduate Institute and a master's and PhD in art history from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University currently an assistant professor in the art and architecture department at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. She held previously a post, numerous posts, but her most recent one before moving to upstate New York was teaching right nearby at the art history department at Chapman University. She comes to us today from Geneva, New York. Welcome to the show, Professor Liliano Leopardi. Thank you. Good morning, Claudia, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Well, it's lovely to have you on. As I said at the beginning of the show, we went from subjugative to the sublime. Here's the sublime, everybody. Uh, we had quite the coverage with uh, some really serious detained issues. We're going to the sublime now. We're going to talk first about this Medici, the mm -hmm. dynasty spanning the late 14th century to the middle of the 18th century with immense financial then eventual political power. Maybe as we go a little bit behind the scenes of all the this collection that's assembled a special way at the Bowers, let's talk about some of the hallmarks of the family history, some of the intrigue behind those busts and portraits on display there. Absolutely. You know, I'm um First of all, let me start by saying that uh, the um, exhibition currently on view at the Bowers is really unique because it's one of the first opportunities for American viewers to see these gems all in one place, gems that even today in Italy are held in various museums throughout Florence and outside of Florence. So it's kind of wonderful to have one place where we actually can touch 
rich history, you know, as you said, from the 1400s to the 1800s. Um, the Medici family were one of the most important banking families of um, Italy and then eventually of Europe. The, their wealth probably began sometime at the end of the 14th century and began with the founding father, Giovanni di Bici. Uh, Giovanni's grandson, most famous grandson, was Lorenzo de' Medici. And Lorenzo de' Medici was uh, known even in his life as the Magnificent. Yes. Um, probably because he was one of the earliest uh, uh, figures to be interested in art collecting, was a very close friend of a number of artists in Florence, you know, people like Botticelli, Filippo Lippi. He was a, a very important commissioner as well of art. And um, his brother Giuliano, who unfortunately was murdered in an attempt uh, uh, against their lives uh, on Easter Sunday, well. <laughs> um, actually ha was the father of the eventual Pope Clement VII. And in fact, the, uh, uh, the Medici family in the 15th century gives us two popes. On the one hand, yes. is Clement VII, and then uh, Pope Leo X. Uh, so if you have, you know, we, we mentioned that at the beginning is a banking family. It rises up pretty fast in importance and able to give two popes uh, to Italy. And through their both commercial and political connections, they were able to then um, rise up to power, uh, uh, probably to the level of kings and queens, uh, you know, in Northern Europe. And by the time that we get to the 16th century, we actually have the um, second branch of the Medici family that comes to power. You see, when Lorenzo dies in 1492, you know, the year of the discovery of America, right. um, the Medici family is actually expelled from Florence just two years later. His son was not an uh, acute statement, not a good uh, politician and so the family lost quite a bit of influence in the city of Florence at the end of the 15th century. But then it regained that power thanks to Cosimo I, who was the son of a cadet branch of the um, uh, Medici family, son of Giovanni delle Bande Nere. And it mm. really is with Cosimo I that the Medici rise up to actually uh, a noble title. And they become Grand Dukes. Well... That that uh, that's a marvel. All of that, yes. and, and the and, way and, you know, and in all the stories, of course, there are intrigues of poison, murder. Uh, Alessandro de Medici was uh, himself murdered mm -hmm. and murdered himself, also his cousin, prior to his death. Um, we have like the um, uh, when we think about the, the son of Cosimo the first, the Francesco the the first, uh, for example, had his own sister killed. So you know, it's a very interesting wow. family from a biographical point of view too. They're from the playbook of the the Roman empires with the, all the, the <laughs> yeah, lethal infighting. I think to a certain extent, they vie with the Borgias. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well, then it all. It sort of comes to a, a, its conclusion, the, the dynasty, when Anna Maria Luisa uh, de' Medici, uh, she lived from 1667 to 1743, and 
she Correct. is the reason there is this provision that none of those gems were ever to leave mostly not to leave Florence, but uh, there there is one collection just outside of Florence, I guess. But uh, so that's what makes this yeah, Bowers exhibit uh, special. You're absolutely right. You know, the gems of the Medici that are today in museums outside of Florence has probably reached it before the death of Maria Luisa. With the death of Maria Luisa, she made the proviso that not only the gems but the art collection of the Medici was to stay within the state. You know, the the, the Tuscan state. The Tuscan state. Okay, so why then, as we we seg into the the aspect of the gems, the collection, why were the Medici's Mm -hmm. interested in these gems? And you can describe them. We'll describe them in some detail, but why, why the gems? That's a very good question, actually. Um, there's two main reasons. The first one is that, you know, gems and precious stones have been collected, of course, by noblemen throughout Europe, you know, since the Middle Ages. And the Duke de Berry was probably one of the most famous collectors of gems. But, so on the one hand, they're imitating the uh, noble families of uh, Europe, they themselves who are merchants. They don't have a noble title in the 15th century, right? And Mm -hmm. on the other hand, and perhaps the most important reason why they're collecting these gems is because of their associations with antiquity. You know, if we look at the collection of the the Medici, even what is in exhibition at the Bowers today, you could say probably about 50% are actually antique, either intaglios, engraved gems, or cameos, and 50% are quote-unquote modern in the sense that they were executed in the 14 or 1500s, right? Right. Um, And so they were collecting these gems because they were associated with the ancient Roman Empire. So portraits of emperor, for example, were highly sought after, as were gems that were believed to to have been owned by emperors. Possibly one of the most famous gems that is in exhibition um, in the... in the Bowers uh, um, today is the uh, um, ex- the the little gem called Apollo Marcius and Olympus. It was yes. also known as the Seal of Nero. And these small gems, which we know was part of the original gem collection of the Medici, so it was originally owned by Lorenzo. Uh, this gem was believed to be or to have been in the possession of the Emperor Nero. So, and, and of course, this is a belief that it was held in, Rena- in the Renaissance time, mm-hmm. right? So when Lorenzo bought it, one of the reasons that he probably purchased it is that he believed that, you know, this was the seal of Nero. Um, it, today we know that that's not the case at oh, all. Okay. Although we do know that it was probably... Uh, commissioned by uh, or under Caesar Augustus. And, you know, the gem has been attributed to um, what is probably one of the best engraver that worked under uh, the Emperor Augustus, Dioscorides. But we don't we do not know, you know, precisely. So even though Lorenzo was mistaken about its origin, it's not Nero but Augustus, it is the um, ancient Roman association that obviously allowed them to sort of style themselves as the grand emperor of antiquity. 
And of course, it's not lost on us then that reinforcement of the theme with the the very classical busts of the Medici family members uh, in this exhibit at the Bower. So it's correct. You're absolutely right. Yes, indeed. You know, those busts, they are immediately sort of uh, broadcast that they're using the um, iconographical formats that were used in uh, ancient Rome. So they are clearly creating a genealogy that is meant to be noble and be endowed with all the virtues that would be attributed to an ancient Roman emperor. Well, while we're talking just briefly about the bust, we'll go back to the other intaglios and the uh, cameos, but I noticed with one of those busts, there is a cartoonish reference uh, on the sort of breast piece of one of the of uh, uh, the Cosimo the the second I'm not the sure Medici. which one. yes so is was that can you tell us as an art historian was that an intentional commentary that the artist took some liberties with or was that do you think commissioned that that kind of oddly kind of grimacing facial um, expression on that breastplate of that bust. <sighs> Uh, 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 uh. Uh, now the breastplate that, um, and unfortunately I don't have an image in front of me, but the breastplates most likely would have referenced um, gods or goddesses of ancient mythology, and a very common breastplate that one finds on the figure of Cosimo the First is actually the image of Medusa. That's it. Um, so it would have been a, re- a reference of course to the fierceness of this monster that turned its enemy into stone right when they gazed upon her so in a way obviously it's communicating martial virtues and the fierceness of the wearer who can turn himself you know the enemy into stone okay it's not all right so it's it's not He's fierce, and it's vanquishing the the correct, the, the figure that's, that's on there. Ah, oh, it's really it's very interesting. Well, when yeah, we it's ta- sort of by association by yes. wearing that breastplate, sort of like is absorbing those kind of abilities or virtues. Okay. Well, we'll now we're talking already. You've talked about Apollo uh, at at Olympus, the seal there, and then there's these yeah. other. Uh, pieces, which in some ways I'd like for you to talk about the craftsmanship involved with taking the first century BC cameo and how then the Renaissance period, the artisan craftsman was able to build around the fragment to fill out the cameo, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right, because in a way, you know, your your earlier question was asking, when you were asking me about the breastplate, you know, you were asking me basically about the apotropaic qualities yes. of these gems, right? Right. And they were certainly appreciated, not just for their apotropaic qualities, but for their carving qualities as well, that is, the manufacturer qualities, right? And right. in this case, we can actually distinguish, um, although it is still very difficult, between manufacture of the first or, uh, uh, you know, let's say from the second century BC to about the third century AD. It's very difficult to give a precise date in antiquity, right. but let's say of the Hellenistic period compared to the gems of the 1400s and 1500s. Right. The ancient gems were more finely carved, yes. more shallow carvings, 
and usually the decorative elements tend to be a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. In the 15th and 16th century, and these are very, you know, they're generalizations. In the 15th and 16th century, the, the carving of the stone itself is not as shallow. The figures, for example, are oftentimes um, decorated with oak leaves, and there is no such details that may be found in ancient gems. So not only do we have like literally like the technical details of carving the gem, mm -hmm. but also the details that are then used to decorate these gems that help us to um, identify their uh, the century or the mm -hmm. general time period in which they were executed. Uh, many of the Medici gems, um, you know, complicate the matter oftentimes because they had contemporary artists to actually intervene on the gem. So you will notice in yes. the exhibition some gems that appear to be made half of gold yes. and half of either agate or corneal, um, whatever the stone happens to be, mm -hmm. right? Right. And that's because oftentimes they had a fragment of a gem, right? They didn't have a whole gem, or maybe the gem broke, right? And mm -hmm. so they would have then uh, a contemporary artist um, execute the uh, a completion of the gem. I think there is a very lovely example executed by one of the most famous 16th century goldsmiths who worked for um, Cosimo de' Medici and executed that beautiful statue that is in the Piazza della Signoria in Florence today oh. of the Perseus, and that is Benvenuto Cellini. There is a beautiful little um, cameo that shows a chariot with a male figure, and it is executed half in gold, and the other half instead is, is in sardonyx. So it is also, you know, the, the ability of these um, goldsmiths to bring together two different types of material and to unify the style of carving because the fragment is ancient, yes. but obviously the gold piece is instead executed sometime probably between 1530 and 1545. So I want to let everybody know uh, my lovely guest in this half hour of the uh, of Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live in all the galleries and salons around the world at KUCI.org. My guest is Professor Liliana Leopardi, the most qualified and engaging scholar, you can tell by now, uh, to give yeah. us this be behind-the-scene look at the Medici um, get Gems collection now at the Bowers until September 15th, and we're talking about that particular craftsmanship that Benvenuto, and I didn't get his last name, that Cellini. Cellini was uh, involved, I think maybe it was the Dionysius chariot, I think from the uh, first century BCE, and uh, then alongside that, folks, you'll be able to see a 15th century complete cameo rendering of a similar scene as it's revered from the, from the classical period. Well, mm -hmm. uh, that also in the exhibit is uh, to move along in the more of the sort of larger architectural aspect is the study yeah. of, of the universe in the Palazzo Vecchio, or Vecchio, please help me out. 
Yeah. Palato Vecchio? Vecchio. Vecchio. Mm-hmm. And it's now the city hall and, and as well a historic site. And it features the elaborate appointments of the inlaid floor tiles that we'll see samples of there at the exhibit and the paintings and the tapestries that depict the earth and the heavens and the season. That's, that's an important part of that, too, to show where uh, what, what power looks like <laughs> in an interior. <laughs> Yeah, the exhibition actually does um, a wonderful job of uh, showing the viewers how these gems were used and where they were kept. So one of the first rooms that one enters has a reconstruction of the courtyard of the Medici household. And one immediately notices that uh, the there are roundels, you know, like in, in stucco, in gesso, that decorated the inner courtyard of the Medici house. And one immediately notices that these roundels are based on the gems and cameos that they collected. Mm-hmm. I think that there is even a cast of a little youth uh, that is um, wearing um, a, a bronze plaquette that is based on one of the um, uh, gems of the Medici. And then as you go further in, it, uh, uh, into the exhibition, we actually have a little bit of a um, sort of like a digital reconstruction through projection yes. of the rooms of the little studiolo, the little study room of Francesco I. The Francesco I was a really interesting character because not only he continued the collection of the Medici, he had this little study room that was in the Palazzo Vecchio, as you correctly said, and in this little study room he conducted alchemical experiments. Mm-hmm. He was extremely interested in alchemy and magic, and many precious stones were important in magical or alchemical processes. And so I think that, you know, you start to see also that these stones were important not only for their, let's say, historical value or monetary value, but that they became important also for the... um, Industrial? uh, exactly, for the esoteric values that were attributed to them. Okay. Well, I, we need to wrap up very shortly. I just would like, while uh, I have Liliana uh, on with us today, just to remind folks that this is all going to end after the Sunday of September 15th. The September 1st coming up, the end of this week, is the final free Sunday for this exhibit at the Bowers. And more information on the Bowers collection, or the exhibition, it's not their collection, uh, Is and this it is... Uh, in the setting, as I always like to say, remind people in this beautiful and festive downtown setting that is Santa Ana. The location of the Bowers is 2002 North Main Street. You can either go online at bowers.org or there is the number, area code 714-567-3600. We can steer everybody over to that exhibit. And uh, I was first uh, given the complete delightful uh, treat of meeting Lilian Leopardi when she was showing press around at the beginning and putting her finishing touches on that before she had to return to her academic responsibilities there at the school at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. So I, you really, your, your touch has felt all throughout this interview, as well as the very insightful, particular, and rarefied kind of balancing of various geographic, financial, political, cultural, aesthetic underpinnings of this whole exhibit, Liliana Leopardi. I really uh, applaud what you were able to do in that, and, uh, and I 
I don't know if ever there will be these, will these gems ever be combined in an exhibit ever again? Shall we put this on the map in that way? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I, I think you put it eloquently. This is a very uh, unique and rare opportunity for all your listeners to see what is what once was the nucleus of one of the most incredible uh, gem collections of the Renaissance. Well, I want to thank you, Professor Liliano Leopardi, for setting aside special time to talk with us today. It was a lovely, delectable bearing that you gave to this, and I hope that everyone will get a chance just they can re-listen to the the podcast later and get that uh, appetite up and running so they can take advantage until the September through September 15th at the Bowers. Professor Leopardi, thank you so much. Uh, grazie mille, please. Grazie. Grazie. And thank you to your listeners oh, as well. Thank absolutely. You. Well, we're going to close the show now, folks, uh, with a few announcements. And uh, for next week, today, uh, next week, I know I really kept telling you that we're going to have on the students at Uni High, but after postponing it some several times, Next week is the week we're going to have Assistant Principal Mike Giorgino talking with, as I said, handpicked students at uni about the culture over achievement. Then in the second half, we're going to present the Associated Student Body office holders around Irvine Unified School District. Next up, as always, is Senor, Senor George Rosales with George Had a Hat. Thank you for listening, everybody, today. Talk to you next week.